0: Welcome visionaries, innovators, and change makers to season two of the value-based healthcare podcast. This is New Frontiers. We're taking you on an expedition into the evolving landscape of healthcare, exploring the most innovative solutions to healthcare plan challenges, cutting edge healthcare technology, and new perspectives that present groundbreaking ideas. So join us as we unveil the future of healthcare in ways you've never seen before. Hey, this is Jay Ackerman. CEO of Revelier, a leading data and analytics company supporting payers and providers with their value based care programs. I'm excited to be back for season two of our value based healthcare podcast. The theme for season two New Frontiers, a season in which we'll interview leaders innovating, disrupting, and transforming healthcare. Today, couldn't be more excited to kick off our first podcast with a very impressive executive who is currently Chief Product Officer of Russell Street Ventures, Main Street Health, and CareBridge. Previously, she served as part of the United States Digital Service, where she led the creation of the national COVID database and products to drive federal response. She began her career in nursing and has spent her career advancing health healthcare through technology. Please welcome Amy Gleason. Amy, hello there. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so excited to have you here with us today. Um, so how about to get started? we, uh, we talk about have kind of a couple of questions related to your career, current job, and career journey. So can you give our listeners a brief introduction to Russell Street Ventures and Main Street Health and the roles that you play in those two organizations?
1: Yeah. So Russell Street Ventures is a VC innovator that has a focus on value-based care for vulnerable populations. And we actually have two portfolio companies um, so far. The first one is CareBridge Health, which brings value-based care services to the Medicaid population that receives long-term support services through home and community-based services. So these are people who usually qualify to be in a nursing home, but want to remain independent at home. So CareBridge provides interdisciplinary services to keep them independent, um, and so they can stay in their home without going into a facility, and they get services such as bathing, cleaning, meal preparation, and clinical services to help manage their chronic conditions and keep them out of the hospital. And then the second company is Main Street Health, which brings value-based care services to rural populations. And we partner with existing primary care practices at Main Street to help them incorporate value-based care services with things like ensuring their patients are seen by their primary care provider regularly, keep them out of the hospital and follow up with them after the hospital, and then to make sure they're receiving preventive measures. And Main Street really uses a health navigator in the clinic to help meet the patient needs and to assist the clinic with non-clinical services that are really important to help improve that access to care and improve the quality of care.
0: Wow. All right. So Russell Street Ventures and head of product in two phenomenal companies. So pretty full plate. But I'm guessing that uh, in your, your career stint before those three is where, uh, where you built up the capacity for that, that kind of workload. So you met Brad Smith, your CEO, while working at the White House. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and how you and Brad formed such an incredible partnership?
1: Sure. So, I was working at the United States Digital Service, which is a part of the White House that brings people in, mainly from the private sector, to do a tour of duty in the federal government. And the U.S. Digital Service usually works on the intersection of policy and technology problems that are really big problems that happen. And so, when COVID hit, I was detailed to Dr. Birx's team, who led the National White House COVID Task Force, and I worked with her to build the federal database for COVID that did all the reporting for the federal response so that we could understand where cases were happening, what hospitals needed, like supplies, or if they needed extra beds to be built, or whether they um, needed treatments like remdesivir when it came out. Um, so our tool really did that. And while I was um, working on that, I met Brad um mainly because I was wearing a Tennessee Vols mask, and he's from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so that's how we first connected with the Go Vols through our masks. Um, but then I really learned to appreciate his urgency and operational efficiency that he brought to the government. A lot of times things in the government, even during COVID, where things move faster than they ever had before, um, can take a really long time um, to get things done. And Brad was really good at coming in and taking processes that were step-by-step-by-step and running things in parallel and driving teams together toward a common goal. And so we worked really well on, um, on those projects. And I'm really excited to be here with him at Russell Street.
0: I imagine, uh, there were some shared kind of principles, um, and beliefs that, that kind of developed while you were at the White House together. Can you share maybe one of those that, that's carried forward for the for the two of you as you work to build these, these two companies within uh, Russell street ventures.
1: Yeah, I think Brad and I um, unite on the need to prioritize the most important thing for the people who need it the most and to do it as quickly as you possibly can, but to do it well. And so I think, um, you know, there are different kinds of people and I think we both tend to drive towards those hard problems and try to do them in a, an effective manner and drive excellence through an operational
0: process. Well, it aligns with one of our values of make every moment matter. Um, well, phenomenal. So let's um, why don't we uh, why don't we turn to this amazing industry that we both work in? Uh, let's talk about how value-based care is accelerating, what creates momentum, and perhaps what uh, what could slow it down. So, how do you see value-based healthcare evolving over the next five years? And what role do you hope Russell Street Ventures will play in advancing value-based care?
1: Yeah, so I think value-based care is growing, but it's still kind of finding its way. Or Medicare is really leading the path with value-based care. And of all the segments in healthcare, it definitely has the highest percentage of patients in some kind of value arrangement. Um, I think Medicare Advantage will continue to grow in market share in the Medicare population over the next five years because it offers patients more of a comprehensive solution that includes not just their traditional health care, but also medications and vision, dental and wellness services. And I think that's resonating with a lot of seniors um, that get you know, confused with some of the more complexity with original Medicare and having to have supplemental and add on different plans. Um, so I think that will continue to grow. Main Street currently focuses on the Medicare population for both Medicare Advantage and original Medicare, so we'll definitely continue our mission to reshape rural health care by bringing value-based care to those rural communities. And Medicaid is also growing quite a bit in value-based care, but at a slower rate than Medicare I think that trend will also continue. Um, That's a space that CareBridge is obviously in with working with those underserved, high-cost Medicaid patients that are typically like 2% of the population, but about 20% of the costs. And the commercial, I think, is the slowest sector to move to value-based care. And I'm not sure I see much of a drive to change that over the next five years. Um, I think there will probably need to be some incentives or, or requirements to really
0: drive that path forward. And your experience, um, what are some of the biggest challenges healthcare providers face in adopting value-based care models, and how can we help them overcome these obstacles? Yeah, sorry, my power just ran out, so I'm
1: just trying to plug in. Okay, Um, yeah, so providers do face a lot of challenges in adopting value-based care, but I think the biggest one is that they're working in – uh, volume. So all their operational processes are really set up in a fee-for-service world. They're so busy seeing patients and trying to just take the best care of their patients that they can, that it's hard for them to even keep up with what the value-based care programs are, what the possibilities, the requirements, much less to really figure out what they need to do to change their practice and their whole operational method to move to a, a different model. I think the number of quality measures and activities that need to be tracked are a lot to tackle, especially for small independent practices that are facing other challenges in their communities as well. Um, Many value-based care activities also offer financial incentives, but they're often paid after the fact. So you have to do a lot of this work to really realize much of the financial benefit. It's really challenging for practices that often have a small operating margin to hire extra staff or to change processes to focus on those when they aren't receiving the final financial benefit until sometime in the future, and with shared savings, they may not receive it at all if they don't achieve the outcomes.
0: How do you um, how do you measure the effectiveness of value based care initiatives at Main Street Health, uh, and how do you ensure continuous improvement?
1: Yeah, so I think our main goals are to improve access to care and to improve quality scores and achieve greater patient satisfaction but to do all of that while also reducing costs. So we track a lot of process metrics and outcome metrics to ensure that we're continuously improving. Um, You know, we have regular dashboards and and reports that we look at every week and, and measure not just how we did that week, but how it's growing over time. We pay a lot of attention also to the patient satisfaction and patient stories to ensure that patients are feeling they're getting better access to care and higher quality and we have a lot of anecdotal pieces of evidence that also are measured um, to really understand how we're impacting the patients, especially around social determinants of health and the stories and of how we can
0: improve patients' lives. So with that, can you share a couple of success stories um, from the uh, from healthcare providers who have implemented value based care programs and initiatives and maybe maybe a story around the impact on a provider and the impact on a patient, kind of in that patient story you were just talking about? Yeah, so we've
1: had so many success stories from our providers. Um, By bringing together a more complete picture of the patient's medical history and activity, we've had several of our providers that found out a lot of information about their patient that they didn't know. So things like their patient was treated in a hospital or an ER or by a specialist, but they just never even knew that information. So they didn't know to even follow it up. So Things like patients who were diagnosed with COPD but weren't getting any treatment or that were diagnosed with kidney failure and didn't um, have any treatment or the provider just didn't even know that it was happening. So providers are always um, excited to find out more information than what they just know in their world and their EMR. Um, We've had a lot of patients who couldn't afford their medications and our health navigator has helped them find either an alternate prescription with the provider or help them apply for extra health benefits so that their medications are covered. Um, That's a benefit that a lot of Medicare patients don't even know they can apply for and get. Um, We've had a lot of patients who haven't seen their provider in a long time, and a lot of times in rural health that may be because they live 45 minutes away and they don't drive anymore, so they have a hard time getting transportation. So our health navigator helps them get transportation or gets a telehealth visit. Um, We've improved the quality measures by a lot, Um, so helping the providers ensure their patients are getting their colonoscopy or their annual diabetic eye exam. There are so many stories, but I think the highest successes are the ones where patients feel like they have an advocate who's really there for them and helps them navigate the system and get what they truly need as an individual. And then um, at CareBridge, I think um, the the stories are much more patient-centric than provider-centric because we are the provider. But I was on a ride-along to a patient's home where I got to observe a visit, and I heard the patient say that they hadn't been to their primary care provider in years. And that patient had had so many urgent care visits and ER visits and hospital admissions. And when they were asked why they hadn't gone to their primary care provider anymore, they said, that that provider, every time they went to the visit, they just tried to talk to them about going into a nursing home. And the patient really didn't want to go into a nursing home. But the provider, you know, I'm sure couldn't manage this complex patient in a short office visit. They had a lot of needs that were really complex. And the provider probably really thought they were better off going into a nursing home. But since the patient wasn't going to do that, they weren't really getting the services that they needed. And so, In CareBridge, there's this whole interdisciplinary team that has physical therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, physicians, social workers, pharmacists, and even psychiatrists. And now that patient is receiving this comprehensive care team with weekly touch points or or even more often if needed and has stayed out of the hospital. So it's a pretty inspiring thing to see how that interdisciplinary care team can really meet the patient where they are and help them with their needs.
0: Wow, those are pretty amazing stories and inspiring. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing them. Um, I'm sure there are also plenty of challenges, uh, specifically in the rural healthcare side. Um, can you share kind uh, an example or two of challenge you see in having the rural providers adopt value-based care models? I know you spoke a little earlier about you know, operating structures being more. Um, targeted around fee-for-service, but perhaps you can share a specific example or two of the challenges.
1: Yeah, so in rural communities, they have so much going on as a whole. There are around 60 million people that live in rural communities, but only about 11% of providers work in rural areas. And about 120 rural hospitals in the communities have closed in recent times. So these issues just continue to reduce access to care and put more strain on the providers that are there. Also, many of these providers tend to use older versions of electronic medical records, or even about 20% of them we find use paper charts still. So without modern technology, it's really hard for them to find the patients who need gaps or might have issues that are falling through the cracks, and they don't often have a lot of insight into other care that their patients are receiving. So that's one way that Main Street really helps is that we bring a lot of data and technology and the power of that combination to bring that to the provider without having them have to log into more portals or look through reports. And we really try to meet them at their current workflow without them having to change anything that they're already doing. And we use that health navigator to really be an extra resource for the provider, for the overall clinic, but most importantly for the patient to help follow up on tasks and to make sure that that patient has all their needs met. Including those social determinants of health issues that are so critical to solve. And you know these are often tasks that the clinics want to provide, but just generally don't have the time to spend several hours on tracking down one thing for a single patient, and that's something the health navigator can do.
0: Well, when staying with the health navigator, you know value-based care is all about working to do more for the patient uh, kind of upfront and continuously to keep them out of a costly care setting. But it's not just up to the provider. Right? The patient needs to to do their part. So how do you see the role of patient engagement evolving within value based care models and what strategies do you recommend to providers to effectively involve patients?
1: Yeah. So I think value based care models do provide a lot of structure to allow better patient engagement through better access to more resources and more time to be spent on the coordination of their care. But as a mom with a child who has a complicated rare disease, I have definitely learned that patient advocacy and patient engagement are really important, but you have to meet the patient where they are. I think patient engagement has kind of taken on this definition in healthcare um, that means if you give them a patient portal or you text the patient that you've now got quote patient engagement. But as I've learned, my daughter's now 24 and she would prefer most of the time to interact through electronic means with her providers. But there are still some things that even she prefers to do in person or by phone. She thinks it's just better to have that conversation. And even with seniors, you might find some seniors that are happy to text with you and others that would rather drive into your office and see you face-to-face for everything and have nothing through electronic. So I think regardless of whatever communication method is used. I think it's really important to find the chances to to connect with the patient. Relationships are more important than the way that you communicate and to have really good shared decision making and have better care coordination and really make sure patients know all the resources that are available to them. A lot of times we don't do a good job of really helping patients know that they have access to these programs that are available to help them and that might help their specific need.
0: Yes, te- technology can do a lot, and it can do a lot more when we give uh, patients more choice, right, into the, to the routes and the channels that they take. Um, all right, we're going to, uh, I'm going to hit you with a policy question. So in your opinion, what are some key policy changes that could accelerate the adoption of VBC uh, programs?
1: Yeah, so I think in general, the biggest thing is that we could simplify the models. The You know, the quality measures alone are a lot to manage, and require you have pretty good data and technology to really be able to manage them. There are probably some key areas that we could really focus on to help the providers adopt those or at least start with those before having so many complex requirements to tackle at one time. And I think, as I said a little bit earlier, I think the commercial plans need some more incentives or sticks, whichever way you look at it, to really move them to value. Um, But kind of overall simplification or a path to starting in, a, in an easier way would be probably helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah. understanding, digesting, and figuring out all the numer- numerators and denominators across the various quality metrics is a bit, uh, can be a bit overwhelming. But, all right, um, how do you think uh, value-based care models can help address health disparities and promote greater equity in healthcare outcomes? And you hit a little bit earlier about STOH, so I'm sure you have a point of view on this one.
1: Yeah, I think value-based care models do help with disparities because they provide some of that financial means to allow more time to be spent on those with greater needs. So, for example, as I mentioned about CareBridge, you know, it's 2% of the population, but 20% of the cost. um, And those patients have a lot of needs that require a lot of time. So if you're just sticking with fee for service, then they're not going to really get that kind of service. Just it's, it's not possible to fit it into the workday. But I think social determinants of health are a key part of improving healthcare outcomes. As we found, you know, patients that can't have their electricity on at home because they haven't paid their bill and we find a resource that helps them keep their electricity on, they're probably going to be more likely to manage their health and achieve come to the provider and and be more engaged if they know that they have that kind of support and they're able to, you know, have that service in their home, you know, same with getting their medications and enough food to eat. Um, Those are challenges that, you know, had traditionally haven't been part of healthcare, but value-based care programs really look more at the whole human and giving more time to really address some of those barriers and that, you know, the financial incentives can help to, to solve those problems and increase care opportunities for those patients.
0: Fantastic. Amy, uh, thanks for the time today. I appreciate the opportunity for the two of us to step away from the specifics of how our company's work together and talk more about this massive, amazing, and evolving industry that we work in. But before I let you go, uh, I'd love to hit you with one final non healthcare related question. You game? How yes. about. Um, All right, here we go. What advice have you received that's had the biggest impact on you and and your career?
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to cheat and probably say two. Um, They're both from my parents. So my dad actually told me from a very young age that making mistakes is a part of life. And as long as you learn from them and you shouldn't be ashamed from them, you should take time to absorb them and try not to do them again, but to learn from them. So I think that's really made me more willing to try new things and to try different career paths and to really um, be open and honest about things that are working and not working at work as well, um, to really learn from things that are happening. I think that's an important thing that in business you need to be able to be open about mistakes as well and make people open to, to saying, hey, this didn't work. How can we make it better? And I think the other one is that my mom really um, told me about how, as a child, she really only had three career choices as a woman: that she could either be a teacher, a librarian, or a flight attendant, or a nurse. I think was the other one. And you know, she really wanted me to understand that I had this amazing opportunity growing up a little later that I could really do whatever I wanted to do, and that if I followed something I was passionate about, that all the rest of the important things would follow. And so. I started out in nursing because I really wanted to help people and I cared for people. But I quickly found that technology was much more exciting to me than being an emergency room nurse. And I found that I could use technology to still improve people's health outcomes. And I've had a pretty great career trying a lot of new things and um, following my passions as I develop new ones as well. So I think both of those together have really shaped a lot of my career.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, I imagine your mom and your dad, if they're both around, are quite proud of what you're accomplishing at Russell Street Ventures, Main Street Health and Care Bridge. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Amy. Thanks With for that, having me. Yeah. Oh, no, of course. With that, we'll uh, we'll call it a wrap today. For, no. more, inf- for more information on Revelier, please visit us uh, at www.revelier.com or you can find us on LinkedIn. Thank you and over and out.